0: Hey there listeners, Eric here. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up before the show that we've been really expanding our glassware and bar tool offerings recently over at modernbarcart.com. In the past few months, we've literally doubled our catalog. So if you haven't checked our e-commerce store in a while, maybe, you know, take a quick spin through next time you're bored. Let me tell you, Just briefly about a couple new glassware pieces I absolutely love. The first is the Barconic Luminous 11-ounce highball glass. These things are gorgeous. They're heavy, they're faceted, and as the name implies, they they really catch the light. This glass is perfect for sipping a Bloody Mary the next time you treat yourself to a dine-in brunch with the family. The other two pieces I'm really stoked about are our Barconic Gold and Silver-Rimmed 7-Ounce Coupe glasses. They're only a couple bucks more expensive than the non-gilded variety, and wow, I can tell you, they're super eye-catching, especially when there's a Manhattan or a Negroni in there for contrast. Head on over to modernbarcart.com to check out these and all the other great glassware, bar tools, and cocktail mixers we've got for you. The prices are extremely reasonable, and in the case of glassware, you can usually save even more when you buy a whole set. Finally, remember that we offer free shipping on orders over $40. Thanks for helping us continue to find new ways to make your home bartending game easier and more fun. And with that, let's get on to the show. modern
1: modern modern Modern.
0: we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't you make that a double modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 151 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host modern bar cart ceo eric koslick Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we scour the planet for the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I pull up a virtual seat with designer and cocktail author Nick Barclay, who shares some fun insights from his book, Measurements, A Proportional Cocktail Guide. But before we start getting technical, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Negroni Spagliato, which is a cocktail that's featured prominently in Nick's book and in this interview. In Italian, Spagliato means messed up or mistaken, but it's not as bad as the more serious term Errore, which means that the Negroni Spagliato is a drink that resulted from good intentions, but slightly wonky execution. The legend is that a bartender at some point grabbed a bottle of sparkling wine instead of gin, or perhaps ran out of gin and needed to resort to the bubbly as a way to beef up the drink. Well, sometimes in these moments, we learn that incredible results are often stumbled upon rather than sought after. To make the Negroni Spagliato, you'll need one ounce of Campari, one ounce of sweet vermouth, and one ounce of sparkling white wine like a Prosecco. Now, unlike your classic Negroni, the Spagliato Riff is actually a built drink rather than a stirred one. And that simply means that you're going to take a rocks glass with ice, add your Campari and sweet vermouth, and then top it up with a one ounce pour of sparkling wine, or perhaps a bit heavier of a pour, who are we kidding? Then you're just going to stir gently to combine the ingredients before garnishing it with a classic orange twist. Now Negroni fans, don't get salty at me here, but you could argue that the Spagliato improves on the classic Negroni in two noteworthy ways. It simplifies the mixing process and lightens the ABV of the cocktail significantly. This makes the Spagliato an excellent brunch or porch sippin' drink, so in those moments when your brain thinks Negroni but your body isn't quite ready to get on board, the Negroni Spagliato might just be the bastardized formula that solves your problem. So, now that you've got an appropriately refreshing sipper to prepare you for this design-driven episode, let's get back to the interview. In this conversation with designer and cocktail author Nick Barclay, some of the topics we discuss include how Nick made his way to Australia by way of the UK, and how the land down under's flourishing cocktail culture inspired him to start designing for the liquid medium. What Nick means when he aims for simplicity of design, either in a print, in his book Measurements, a Proportional Cocktail Guide, or in an actual cocktail. Some of the challenges behind creating two-dimensional visual representations of three-dimensional objects like cocktail glasses and garnishes. How color became an important consideration when representing the proportional relationships between different ingredients in drinks. A few thoughts on the wine culture in Australia as compared to consumer tastes in Canada and the U.S., the trials and tribulations of a cocktail lover who doesn't enjoy the taste of whiskey, and much, much more. This episode is a great companion piece to episode 49 where I interviewed Melissa Wood, author of the book Architecture of the Cocktail. So, if you're one of our newer listeners and this subject matter gets you jazzed, you might want to head back into the archives and check out that conversation as well. With that, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this design-driven chat with cocktail author and designer Nick Barclay. Nick, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So just to get us kicked off here, can you please just briefly introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background so that our listeners can understand who you are and what you do? And then we'll kind of dive into this awesome book project that you have.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, Nick Barclay. I design stuff Um, originally from the UK, but I've been uh, living in Australia for 11 years. And yeah, I um had a silly idea for some cocktail stuff. Uh, wolf, god, about seven years ago, ten years ago, and it's kind of captured people's imagination, and it's just kind of grown from there.
0: So. Tell tell me a little bit more about your background, both in the cocktail space and the design space, because uh, I've reviewed your your website and you've got a a lot of amazing stuff there for uh, like kind of across the board. Uh, But but I don't see a ton of stuff on your website about cocktails, you know, obviously outside of the book. So tell me tell me a little bit about how design and cocktails intersect, at least for you.
1: Oh, it's um. Well, back in the UK, I worked in publishing for uh, about ten years, and then um, emigrated to Australia. And my first job in Australia was working on Australian Bartender Magazine, and that obviously introduced a, a whole new world of drinking to me. Because obviously, back in England, we were all about pints, and as close as I got to a cocktail was a vodka and lemonade at the end of the night. And so this whole new world of people and cocktails and everything got opened up to me. And I was just kind of blown away that I'd been a bit ignorant to it for all those years. So it just kind of went from there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, that's, that's interesting, too, because one of the things that's interesting about Australia as opposed to the UK is that they, as far as I understand have access to a lot of really interesting native ingredients. Obviously, it's a completely different hemisphere, completely different climate than the UK. Uh, and I know a lot of folks are really excited about the gin scene right now.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. The, um, oh, one of the big ones is um, Westwinds. I mean, they had a big push, oh, uh, probably about seven, eight years ago because they, I think they were the one of the first ones that I know of that started using Australian botanicals in their gin. And I mean, I, I wasn't a gin person, but you could measurably taste the difference.
0: Mm-hmm, for sure.
1: And that I mean, that, and that was um, pretty much the start of what people call the gin revival as well Is I mean, they were um, ahead of the curve on that one.
0: So why don't we take a moment here uh I it, it's just occurring to me that I, I don't know that um our listeners who are mostly US based might not be familiar with uh how amazing Australia is for cocktails. Can can you speak a little bit to the the cocktail scene there because obviously, you know, you, it's part of your story.
1: Yeah, well, I mean I mean this was this this was part of the thing. It's like um I mean what well, living and working and drinking in London, you think you'd be um kind of like knowledgeable and drinking. And then I came over here and it was like, whoa, what's going on? Everyone's drinking cocktails. It was like, there was this like, was just like you, you go to the pub and the pubs are huge and everyone drinks schooners and beers and stuff. And outside of the big pubs, it's just a huge cocktail scene. Everyone's knowledgeable, everyone drinks. And it was just, I was just blown away by it. And I mean, the amount of the, the cocktails available and just the, the, the active cocktail community, so people like everyone supports each other and it was just it was just incredible to see it was just, and like i said it's opened up my eyes to loads of drinks and then when i went back to england i was just because I, I tried the negroni and hated it the first time as i imagine most people do i was like what the hell is this and then obviously it, um it found its way into my heart and then i um went back to England and I was like saying to my mates, it's like, it's, it's just crazy. Like most people drink cocktails. It's just like, you'd never blah, blah, blah. like, it's, it's just blew my mind. And so I was intri- introducing them to a few of the cocktails that I just like discovered. And the grony was one of them. And then on the flight back, I just had this silly idea. It's like, well, he's like, if so many people um, drink cocktails, but they don't know what goes into them. So that's where the idea for the posters came from. It's just to like inform people what goes into their popular drinks.
0: Mm-hmm. I, so I, I love I love that you're a, a print guy personally, right? Because there's there's actually been this this <laughs> really interesting resurgence because we had I maybe for a five to seven year stint, maybe a couple years ago that it ended. We had this big, um, kind of like push for eBooks, digitizing everything. You know, we had the, all these small bookstores were closing and we seem to be in a bit of, of a revival right now in terms of people being newly interested in analog. You know, once we, once we got away from books and print and physical things, we realized how much value there is in those. So I personally, I'm on that side of the fence. So I love that you're a print oh, guy. Oh, no,
1: yeah, because I've always been an advocate. I just think the um, having something tangible in your hands, that's how their brain engages and retains information is obviously that tangible thing of like, oh, and your brain engages and goes, right, I'm reading a book. I'm going to concentrate rather than I'm looking at a digital screen. I just watch stuff on this, and generally, I don't think the information's retained as well.
0: For sure, for sure. So this is all to say, um, you've got this—you uh, create prints, and then you've also kind of turned this print project into, you know, a book that basically is centered around the the way that you can visually represent cocktails so that people can understand them either better. Or differently? And in my opinion, different is better because I think the more ways we have of looking at the same thing, the the more, you know, the deeper our understanding is. So I, I guess my my first question to dip our toes into the cocktail world is what are what is your personal design aesthetic, whether you're talking about a cocktail that you would like to prepare or drink or a print that you're going to put on a poster or in a book?
1: Well, I, I'm just uh, I I just think if it doesn't need to be on the page, it doesn't need to be on the page. And you know what I mean? It's like if you you simplify. And I always with it's not just a cocktail project, a lot of projects. I set myself a goal of having at least amount of stuff on a page, and still project what I want to project. And it's always a case of if you. I just think over explaining it to people just takes. Uh, a bit of the joy out of it. So if people look at it and they don't necessarily get it the first time, but then they look at it and then they get it the second time, you get that, ah, oh, and, and it's like that discovery moment. And then people engage more with your work. And it's again, it's like um, keeping it like simple, bright and bold. It's like, it can work as an informative tool or it can work as just a piece of art that people might want to have on their wall. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think that, that dual functionality is really important, right? Like, because, uh, you know, if you want to look at something as a piece of information, how much more do you want to look at that thing as a piece of information when it is also pleasing and stimulating to you? Right.
1: Oh, exactly. The reason that people don't frame dictionaries, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, it's like that kind of thing. It's like yeah, you, it's, it's 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 completely subjective to whoever buys it. They might buy it as an informative thing, and that's that they, they get their kicks from that, or they might just think it looks pretty. And it's like it's it's up to people how they want to view it and enjoy it. So.
0: Yeah. So, so this interview actually dovetails with one that I did a long time ago. And I'm talking over, you know, over a year and a half ago, uh, over a hundred episodes of this podcast ago, where I took uh, a look and, and interviewed the author of the book called Cocktail Architecture. And this book ostensibly, you know, used the kind of like the, the, trademark, blue coloration of architectural designs, that blue and white um, kind of schematic representation of cocktails. And so we talked about that, right? and I, and there are some ways in which that manner of designing and displaying cocktails is is similar to yours, right? In, in your representations, you you certainly allocate layers uh, to certain ingredients. You certainly uh, do things like identify the shape and dimensions uh, of the glass implicitly. And you also treat things like garnishes, for example. So there are some similarities. There are some basic building blocks to the way that we need to go about representing a drink. Um, but one of the things that I notice about your representations is that they're they're very colorful. They're very vibrant. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you can maybe um, give us an example of a cocktail that was either really challenging for you to design in the book or on the poster, or one that you had a really good time or a lot of fun designing. And maybe we kind of walk our listeners through like what goes through a designer's head when they're looking at a cocktail.
1: Well, one that I've designed a few times and never actually used is the uh, whiskey sour because it just looks ugly. I mean, the color combinations just don't work and it doesn't work as a visual representation. And it really frustrates me that I've never been able to get my head around it. But, um, but generally, I think the, the one that I was really surprised about that came together really well was... Um, you've got the uh the mojito i actually thought that's like a, it's, it, it kind of works on a visual level and um, but that, i thought that was going to be tricky and it's one of those ones I, I sit down and i kind of have an idea in my head of how i think it will look and then sometimes it just doesn't work and it's, it, it can be frustrating and it's one of those i just leave it and come back to them but um, yeah that the ones that, I mean things like the uh, the bijou, I'm not 100% on that because again, it, it's like a solid, it's solid like I'd say a lot of whiskey or bourbon-based drinks are quite difficult because you're getting a block of orange, and so from a visually exciting point of view, it doesn't really pop. But again, that's it's one of those. I I just think well, you know, it might be someone's favorite drink. It might people might like it. And so it's one of those, it's just a, sometimes to a dip your toe in and see the reaction, Sure. but the ones actually, the the ones I was actually really surprised about that I thought were going to be tricky was represent. so, you know, we got, um, we got some bars from around the world in the back and representing their, some of their signature drinks. I was a bit scared about doing that because obviously it's quite a personal thing to them and surprisingly enough, a lot of them came together really well. And there's one called um, Lovers in the Sun from um, Twenty Eight Hong Kong Street, and it was just as soon as I saw it, I know it is going to. I thought it was going to be beautiful. It's just like layers of pink with like a a nice uh, green dill garnish, and it's like that that kind of color combination. It's like the opposite colors of the spectrum. So obviously green, pink is the opposite of green. So that yeah, things like that work really well. You can kind of tell by looking at cocktails but yeah um anything on the on the uh, on the brown scale or the dark orange scale can be a bit of a a fiddle because you know it, yes i want to represent a cocktail but at the same time it's kind of it'll be visually appealing so you don't want just a a brown gradient because it's not that exciting to look mm-hmm, at
0: for sure yeah so this is one of the interesting departures that your work has from this cocktail architecture book that i was referring to right because uh that book was using mostly um it had this it had this legend of various patterns uh to represent various ingredients so uh with the book being only in blue and white the the great the the different ingredients being layered on top of one another were were represented not using different colors but different patterns and i think in one sense yeah. you know it's very useful right because if you're going to constrain yourself to just blue and white then I think that's a very creative way to get around the necessity of kind of distinguishing ingredients from one another. Um, but I, I guess since you're so dedicated to color, uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, you just mentioned right now the fact that like this really beautiful example came from when you had this really pink cocktail with lots of pink ingredients and then this shock of green from the dill garnish.
1: I hit- it's one of those things, it's like, um, again, it's like, it, from my point of view, I, I would like people to kind of visually recognise the cocktail, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. So, obviously, it's up to other people how they represent, but me personally, I, I wanted people to actually look at it and kind of, maybe in the, just in the back of their mind, their, their brain goes, oh, I recognise that. Mm-hmm you know what i mean cuz and and i mean well and a grain is quite i mean I, and that's was part of the reason behind using the um the geometric shapes of the glasses mm-hmm. cuz it um it like gets people's brains kind of they they switch on quicker they go oh yeah because everyone recognizes a martini glass and then so instantly there is like oh right so i mean and that was kind of the idea behind that and yeah it was just basically i just think As a visually pleasing aesthetic, I thought the bold colours would be more of a beneficial way to go in uh, switching people's brains on and it just looking pretty at the same time.
0: Right. And when I look at your book, I mean like, so personally I am not a visual learner personally. I like to either read something in texts. Like I, I like, I like paragraphs. I will, I will read a paragraph several times. And once I've read it, maybe once I've underlined or annotated something about that, then I personally internalize that. But one thing that strikes me about your book is that it seems like it's really uh, geared toward people who are, A, excited by beautiful, clean visuals, and B, people who prefer that modality for learning about cocktails. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the process of, you know, uh, designing the book from start to finish. Like how did you pick the drinks? Um, d- uh, and how did you go about organizing the book so that it made sense as either, you know, something people could pick up occasionally and kind of flip through for inspiration or maybe conversely, uh, as, as something that someone could kind of like read from start to finish over, you know, a set period of time and, and, you know, kind of go through in a linear fashion.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, cause honestly, that was one of the headaches of um, the book was trying to decide where it sits. It's like because it's um, but then I just kind of thought, well, it can sit where it, where it sits and people can get what they want. Because obviously, if you're a bartender, you're going to recognize the drinks. You're probably going to know what goes into a lot of them. So you're probably more looking at it as art. And if you're someone who's new to cocktails, which is where I get more ex- like the, the, the excitement comes from for me personally, it's like, if I'm introducing people to cocktails, they've never heard of, or they've heard of them, but didn't know what goes into them. And that was um, the, 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 that was my main idea behind the posters originally. It's like introducing people to cocktails, because obviously I'm not going to be preaching to bartenders because they, they obviously, they know they have like this, amazing catalog of drinks in their brain so it was more take what you want from it and but and organizing it again was uh it was basically it was going to go in um in spirit order but I don't think it ended up going that way I think we just decided to flip it up so it kind of it flowed in a sense in just what looked good flowing through the book and that was the idea I just you know I just some people might just have it as a, a, a visual thing on their coffee table and some people might you know want to learn from it but one thing I didn't I it's meant to be a visual thing of cocktails not how to make cocktails that's one thing I was worried mm-hmm. about I didn't want people to buy my book and think oh it's not telling me to have them how to make the cocktail because I mean that that's generally not the idea behind it it's not a guide to making cocktails it's a guide to what goes into those cocktails
0: you know what kind of strikes me about it is that it's a it, in a very bizarre way it almost reminds me of like a book that you would find about various types of animals you know yeah. it's it it's it's a it is a menagerie of sorts and because you know there obviously you just described it's very difficult when you have a collection of cocktails or a collection of things that are all very disparate in some regards it's very difficult to to kind of assert these um sometimes arbitrary categories for them if if it's if it's not really driving oh, i mean I,
1: I mean especially with cocktails as well because you know so there's so many disputed recipes for so many things everyone has a little twist on everything and so it was just that it's like well if 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 i just set it out to be a basic guide of cocktails i'm happy if it sits there I, I don't you know i mean i i i mean if i went through showing all the variations and it's obviously some people might disagree with some of the measures or what in the cocktails and it's like well that's the cocktail world i mean that's what i love about it. So like you go to one bar and someone's got their slight twist on a drink that and it, it can be amazing and it's like so I mean and that's I didn't it's well and that was one of the difficult things again it's like oh god I don't want to piss people off but at the same time there uh, is a very varied world in the cocktail world of what goes into which drinks.
0: Well, you know, they do say that uh, art like morality uh, is all about drawing a line somewhere. So ob- <laughs> <laughs> obviously we have to make choices there. But let's talk a little bit about measures uh, now, because obviously the title of the book is very tied to that idea. It's, it's called Measurements, a Proportional Cocktail Guide. <laughs> and actually yeah. in that title, uh, I see not a bit of a paradox, but maybe a bit of a tension because, uh, when you make a cocktail, uh, I'm assuming that you're using metric measures. And when I make a cocktail, I'm using our bizarre, uh, American measurement system that doesn't really jive with the rest of the world. So, Uh, if we're looking at the first word of your book title, measurements, you and I are actually not on the same page. But then when, to me, the magical thing about measurements versus proportions is that even if your measurements are off, right, even if you're speaking two different languages about the increments that you're using to measure your pores, the proportions are still the same. So I, I, I love how there's a bit of a tension between your title, where you're talking about measurements, a proportional cocktail guide. It doesn't matter if our measurements are yeah. off. Our proportions, at least in a perfect world, in the in the platonic world of cocktail forms, the proportions are the same. Um, so,
1: <laughs> well, you know, they've all got to fit in one glass, haven't they? They
0: do. They do indeed. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I mean, how, how do you think about the relationships between ingredients, right? So, like, I, I was thinking about, like, when you were talking earlier, you know, you mentioned the Negroni, and it's come up quite a bit. It's also one of my favorite drinks. So, when you are you were designing the Negroni visual, right, for your, your yeah. book, how did you go about reconciling the fact that the gin was clear, the... Campari was a bright sunset red and the sweet vermouth is very often a a deeper kind of dark burgundy oxidized maroon color.
1: Well, I mean, that's where I kind of had to make a decision because I was like, you can't, I'm not going to represent the color of the spirits. I'm just going to use color blocks to represent the spirits of the overall color Mm -hmm. of the drink. Because I mean, that's a lot of people have gone down that route. And for what I wanted to do visually, it didn't work because I wanted to represent the look of the cocktail at the Mm -hmm. end, rather than the ingredients to go into the cocktail. Because, uh, if I went down that route, they wouldn't have represented the overall look at the end. It would have just been, oh, right. There's a clear bit, a red bit and a dark red (laughs) bit. And that for me doesn't look like a Negroni. And like visually a Negroni is that orangey red. So that was the idea of, uh, and that's why the the color bars look the way they Mm -hmm. do. It's meant to be like, I wanted to represent the end result, but with the blocks of color represent the proportion of alcohol in there. So rather than visually representing the alcohol.
0: Yeah, and, and for listeners who uh, aren't familiar with Nick's work, basically uh, the way that I think about this is let's say you are at the hardware store looking for uh, a new color to paint your accent wall or your uh, child-to-be's nursery, for example, and then you go up to... Um, you know, a an area of the paint aisle that has the general color palette that you're looking for, and then they have all these swatches of paint. Uh, so uh, the the different kind of blocks that Nick is talking about, they they they're not exactly the same color, but the way that they work together, being slightly different hues, creates kind of what it does is it it, it simultaneously. Emphasizes that there are differences between these ingredients and differences between their proportions, but it still has this gestalt, this this end feeling that really represents what the drink looks and feels like in the glass when you serve it, and that's visually one of the things that really drew me to your work. Um, so I don't know. Do you agree with that that description of of uh, the the visualizations?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely, man. I mean, and that's, that's a big part of um, a lot of my work is um, your brain messes with you every day. So although they're, say, like on the apparel Spritz, there are three strong, like, defined colours, when you look at it, your brain just goes, oh, it's, it's orange. So your first thing is, oh, oh, it's an orange drink. And then, secondly, you go, oh, yeah, and it's separated into colours. But the first thing you think is orange drink. So, I mean, and yeah, I, I like playing on in a lot of my work on the way that you how people's brains mess with them every day or simplify things for your, you to process information.
0: Yeah, and that's such a designer way to think about things, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I love it. I, I am not a designer, uh, although I do really appreciate design thinking. And and one of the one of the ways that we encourage our listeners to think about cocktails is um, uh, a theory that that's called affordance theory, where it is literally um, you know a, any child does it. Any any toddler who walks up to a ball picks up the ball and then rolls the ball on the ground is is basically doing affordance theory. They've identified an object. They have grasped certain properties about that object. And then they have said, well, well this is a spherical object. I assume that this affords rolling and thus they roll it, yeah. right? And, um, you know, so it's a, it's a very hands-on kind of way of looking at things. So I, I do appreciate it. Well,
1: yeah. it's, it, I think it's, it's, a, it's a natural way of learning. It's what we've done since we were crawled out the swamp Mm -hmm, kind of thing mm -hmm. see an object play with it figure out how you can use it and how it works and then that's how you learn well I mean I still learn like that if I'm trying to learn a new program or something I the best way for me to learn rather than reading a book is to sit down and try and use it I mean there's lots of swearing (laughs) and stuff but eventually it gets the end (laughs) result that I would get to rather than reading a book and then trying to sit down and remember what I just oh, learned. Oh, for
0: sure. For sure. Um, so to that end, I, I wanted to talk about the treatment of glassware and garnishes in your book and in, in the posters. Um, uh, now, obviously, glassware and, and garnishes are you know, kind of another one of those places in cocktail culture where – There's a lot of wiggle room, right? Well, some people uh, drink a Negroni up and some people drink a Negroni over a nice large rock. Some people garnish things with, you know, like a martini. Well, do you garnish with the orange twist? Do you garnish with the lemon twist? Do you express and discard the lemon twist? Do you make it a dirty martini and put the the olives in there, right? So how did you make decisions about um, how to represent the glassware and garnishes? And uh, was any of that interesting to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, the garnishes can be a headache. I mean, honestly, they can be a headache because like you say, there's so many different ways so again I made the decision to just try and stick to the traditional and I mean it's just like as traditional as I can find that's what I'm going to stick to and because like it, it that's the only way I could make those decisions and yeah the glassware again it, I just had to go with the traditional route because obviously certain drinks and certain bars but it's like Again, you can't. I couldn't pander to every single adaptation of every drink that's ever been created. Cause I mean, you could probably do a whole book just on variations of the martini and the grony now. So
0: it's very true. It's very true. Um, so, with the, with the, can you just describe? So, like, what we've described is, is the color swatches, right? But how, how how are the glassware and, and the garnishes differentiated from the color swatches, if at all? Because I'm trying to give, like we're in this audio medium, I'm trying to give people oh, some I mean, visuals. Yeah.
1: So but again, it's, it's it's more, it was just about, again, it's like, it just breaks down to geometric shapes. It's like, so, you know, obviously garnishes, half, half a lemon or a live slice. It's just a semi-circle or a half-circle. And so, again, some of those can be a header. I mean, it took me to get the – to figure out the orange twist. probably took me two days to get to actually figure it out so it looked how I wanted it to look just – well, to your listeners, it's just basically a squig- – not a squiggle, but a a flowing curve kind of thing, a double curve, and that took so many – like tries it visually ganging it so it looked simple and geometric and but still represented what i wanted Mm -hmm. and things like um the mascarano cherries they're a bit of a headache It's like, do i put the stalk in do i not put the stalk in how does it look like a cherry if it doesn't have a stalk in and the end result it doesn't look like a cherry if it doesn't have the stalk in so and things like that so i mean that again that's one of the things with simplified work it's a lot harder than people think Mm -hmm. yeah and there's a lot a lot of tricky decisions and if people don't see it as a tricky decision that's where i've obviously done my job properly. Oh,
0: for sure. Right. And and so this is what I love about designers and design thinking is because it really isn't so much about adding things in. It's all about what you can take away and what you can simplify. And, you know, just as you were describing the process of the citrus twist, it's like, ah, I knew that that would have been an absolute thorn in your side, right? Because from, you know, looking at it, like if you were to literally walk up to a lemon, you, you would, you know, you could get up from your seat right now, go to your kitchen, get a lemon, take a twist off of it. And it seems almost two dimensional until yeah. you have to manipulate it and represent it as a cocktail garnish. And there's some there's something yeah. about cocktails that have this magical way of taking something that seems simple and then making it seem magical or complex. And so your project is almost doubly difficult because you're trying to take this very simple, real-world set of ingredients and represent them in a sensical way, but the idea of the cocktail is almost resisting you. Did you ever get that feeling during this project that the cocktail almost was like resisting you in your project to simplify?
1: I mean, going back to the garnishes, I mean that that was another issue. I mean, because it's, it's, some of them, it's like you'll see the garnishes sit above the glass, and some of them they sit in. And again, that was purely a visual thing, and it was a massive headache. It was just like. Some of them look good in, some of them look good above, and it's like it doesn't like with um in the in tool glasses, the um the garnishes floating above look stupid. It didn't kind of like put on the in the martini glass, so the garnishes sitting above seemed to work really well visually. So, again, that was one of the processes and headaches, and it was like, oh, are they consistent? But then again, it was more the consistency in the shape of the garnish that made them consistent across the board, whether the garnish be half in the drink, above the drink or in the drink.
0: Yeah. And that is something that I feel like most people uh, don't necessarily have a deep appreciation from because... You know, you go to the store, you buy several lemons or several limes, and you might be able to make any number of different drinks from them. Uh, But until you are forced to sit down and try and standardize something about those drinks, I don't think you realize how unique each drink is from the next and how frustrating that can be from from a, a simplification perspective. So that's certainly one of the things that I appreciate about your work is that you've done the hard work of simplifying and I think that's something that most people don't really make a connection with these days because, you know, simplifying doesn't seem like hard work, but it really is if you're if you're doing it in a deep way. So I, I just wanted to say from a personal perspective, that's what I that's what really drew me to your work in, in the in the first place. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, does anyone do, do you get similar reactions to that? Uh, what, what have some of the reactions been to your work so far?
1: I mean, the, the, the reaction I mean this is what blew me away it's like it like I said it started off as just a silly idea and a playing and it was just like oh and then it's just going to grow from that and for something I mean and I'm always blown away that people buy my work and just want to hang it in the house I mean that always messes with my brain it's just like you know something loves someone something you've done so much they actually want it in their in their space to look at I find I still find incredible and it's like so and yeah the the, the reactions are always good i mean it's one of those it's cocktails everyone loves cocktails even if you i mean if you i mean even just as a a visual thing they're they're beautiful and so and like i've always said i think bartenders are creatives in their own right they're creating something from nothing and the end result is visually pleasing and it also tastes great so i mean in, in that sense their they're creatives in their own, in their own measure.
0: Absolutely. So we've been, I, I feel like we've um, buried the lead slightly here, uh, of course, on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast uh, in the show notes page for this episode, we're going to have links uh, to all of your, you know, your website, your, you, the, the different links to purchase your, your book and your prints. Uh, but can you just describe for our listeners here, Primarily in the states, although we've got some, got got a few folks in in Australia and Europe as well. Can you describe if somebody's interested in reviewing the prints that you have for sale um, or going to purchase the book? What 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 is your recommended method of doing so?
1: To purchase a book, um, as I don't know if people are for. I mean, I never shop on Amazon, but um, Amazon is probably the best bet. Because of their far-reaching tentacles or you can buy it directly through um the publisher or and it is actually I've, I've got lots of lovely messages from north america and it just pops up all over the place in independent bookstores which is really mm-hmm. nice that's part of the magic for me people discovering it in a small bookstore and it's like yeah you had all that choice and you, it's, it's just kind of warms my cold heart that you decided to pick my one out and take it home with you. It's just like, it's a really nice feeling. Absolutely.
0: Um, so, uh, for those of you listening, I mean, this is kind of like one of those standard author situations that we have. Um, if you're interested in Nick's book, just uh, go ahead and dial up your local bookshop. Obviously, with some of the shutdowns, uh, there may be some restrictions in place, but I can tell you this, uh, at least from what I've gathered here in Washington, D.C., these folks are very motivated to help you, especially at this exact moment when this episode is going to be airing. They've uh, been seeing obviously redu- uh, reduced foot traffic, so if you are motivated to order from an independent, that's some uh, something that certainly I would recommend, and um, you know I think it's just a it's a good thing to do all around to kind of keep the keep the money in the local economy. So Nick, um, is there anything else you'd like to share about the book?
1: There is the, there's the little bells and whistles I threw on, is like the augmented reality side to it. Where the cover, if you download the Artivive app, the cover, the Negroni, the Espresso Martini, and the Apparel Spritz, um, if you hold your phone up over the book, the page animates to show you how the drink is made.
0: Oh, wow. I did not realize that before we sat down.
1: <laughs> That's. I've been wanting to put AR into my work, augmented reality in my work for a while, and this seemed. Like the perfect one, and so yeah, I just kind of picked three of the most popular or well-known cocktails, and um, yeah, they it, there's a little animation that shows you the drink being made.
0: So literally, you're just gonna take a smartphone. and You're gonna uh, what? Can you repeat the app that you'll need to download for that?
1: Uh, the Artivive app is free, and it just like you just hold your phone up, and then the and then the, the cover just basically flicks through every cocktail in the book and it's kind of freaky cause you can move your phone around and it, the animation just sticks oh, wow. and then, yeah. So, and then on the, um, yeah, the apparel spritz and everything. It's, it's lovely. It's wow. Nice. Okay.
0: Well, we will link to that in the show notes as well. Just
1: an extra added layer of enjoyment.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. hmm so yeah, that's awesome. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes page.
1: Oh, well, one one thing, one thing I'd like to do is I just Angus Winchester was a massive, massive, massive help with my book. He's an absolute legend. He's 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 a top bloke. He supported my work for a while, and when I needed the uh, the encyclopedia of cocktails to be opened in someone's brain, he was my go-to, and he was a gentleman and really, really helped out a lot with the book.
0: And can you uh, just explain his influence for folks? Is he a bartender? Is he an author, a publisher?
1: Uh, he's a gin ambassador and just an all-round top guy. He's like well-established and known in the cocktail world. He's just one of life's beautiful people. And, yeah, he's just he's just a lovely guy. And he's very knowledgeable, very... He's just lovely. He's he's like, you know, and he helps lots of people. And I just really appreciated all his uh, feedback and help on the book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will uh, slap a link for Angus in the show notes page as well. And um, are you ready for some lightning round questions?
1: Uh, Probably not, but go for it. Okay, let's do
0: it. Uh, (laughs) uh, What's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've recently fallen in love with?
1: Uh, my favourite was a Negroni, but I find it a bit of a punish sometimes, so I'm, I'm more air towards a Spagliato these days.
0: Hmm. What is a Spagliato?
1: Ah, the Spagliato, if I, well, I could be wrong, but Spagliato means uh, the wrong Negroni. So the story goes that someone picked up sparkling wine rather than gin, chucked that in. So that's your Spagliato. It's made with sparkling wine
0: ah gotcha gotcha yeah yeah um i've been doing a similar type of thing i call it the negroni spritz where i'll use the gin and the campari but then i'll just take a, a can of grapefruit seltzer
1: and then build a That's tall a nice drink one.
0: over ice yeah yeah, yeah. very similar yeah, no,
1: but I, I yeah i just find negroni sometimes i'm not in the mood it can be a bit of a long a long drawn out affair so uh, i lighten it up by having a spagliato and it's um yeah i just find it on a A really hot day in Australia. It's it's a nice afternoon drink.
0: Now, question: Does Australia have a good sparkling wine presence domestically? Because when I think of it, does
1: yeah, it kind of does. I mean, Australia is wine, wine, wine. There's a massive, massive. There's vineyards all over the place. But and um, the best ones I've actually had are from smaller independent ones. I mean, I never used to be a rosé drinker, but um, I did a a label, a wine label for this uh, vineyard down in um, Victoria, and he sent me up uh, his range, and the sparkling rosé was absolutely incredible.
0: Well, you should um, you should make a note to tell your winemaker friends to send them here to the US because Australia is very poorly represented in the sparkling space here.
1: I I, I actually went to Canada for work um, a couple uh, a while back, and I was amazed at how much tanning is in the red wine it's so so dry it was like one sip and your tongue just shrivels up i I was amazed and um the person i was with actually said it's like this is how uh, i mean uh, this is how north americans like their wine with um (laughs) and i was like i don't know so but i was i was amazed it was like it was really really difficult to find a good red in all the bars
0: yeah yeah, that's um, you know, wine it, it, wine is a tricky thing here in the U.S. There's there's a there's a lot of different movements going on. There's you know natural wine. There's the establishment of Napa Valley and the as you mentioned, kind of like the the heavy tannins, like the the drier and more bitter the better in some respects. Like, you know, you just want to drown a steak in it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I've, I've loved some Australian wines like penfold, like one of the larger mass market ones that we get here in the U S is penfolds. And I think, they oh, have some yeah, well, I mean, expressions
1: Pen, Penfolds. you can, you can get affordable penfolds and then life saving penfolds. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is a, yeah. good, it's a, it's a good wine.
0: For sure. For sure. Well, that's great. Uh, And then now next question, if you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why?
1: Oh, Jesus. Um, I would probably be, I've forgotten the bloody name of it because it just went into my head and right out. Uh, Oh God, I can't remember the bloody, it's like Jaeger, but on steroids. I've just forgotten the name of it.
0: Oh, uh, Fernet?
1: Fernet, yes. Fernet. I would be a Fernet. Love it or hate it. It's one of those, if you love it, you love it. If you hate it, you might hate it. But I, I love it, and I think it's very misunderstood.
0: Um, did you have a Fernet experience that made you fall in love with it or a noteworthy experience with it that you'd like to share?
1: Again, this is Australian bartenders. It was like um, Fernet was kept in the fridge, and it was the end-of-the-night shot. And I firmly mm-hmm. believe that a shot of Fernet at the end of the night drastically reduces your hangover and then recently last year i discovered the mint for Net, which was just incredible
0: and i imagine the mint for Net being refrigerated would present an even more intense uh like heady rush right
1: <laughs> oh it's just it's beautiful yeah it's just like that it's just like it's for that with like real mint to it. it's just like incredible mm-hmm
0: Yeah. It's one of those things that just clicks into place. And uh, for me, that's one of the moments where I really appreciate the producers who are able to like figure out all of that alchemy in their little back rooms in Italy or wherever they are. (laughs) (laughs) If you're interested in learning a ton more about Fernet, check out episode 142, where I interview Nick Fisher of Cocktail Chemistry about his radical nine bottle tasting of Fernet's from around the world. All right, next one. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture.
1: Oh, God. That's a tough one. Um, actually, I would probably do it with my best friend's dad because I didn't get to have a drink with him before he died. So, And it would be in his living room just having a drink, chatting about things that you don't get to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did he have a drink of choice? No, he didn't actually. He was one of those. Um, you know, as some people as they get older, they drink less, and then finally, they just have a beer every now and again. Casual, casual. I'd probably have a nice red, and then um, maybe something else. But yeah, you know, that's just like that nice, relaxed, chatty drinking.
0: Yeah, exactly. Those are the those are the moments that uh, that mean the most for sure. Yeah. All right. Common or traditional cocktail ingredient that you've never tasted,
1: and why? Oh, jeez. Actually, talking about Amara's, I've never had Montenegro in a drink. Mm. If I thought about it, there's probably loads, to be honest, but the one that springs to mind, because it's obviously at the front of mine. My... Yeah, I've never had a Montenegro, in, and uh, Lilith as well. I've only ever had one white Negroni, and I absolutely hated it. So, again, that's one I'd like to revisit to see if it sits better.
0: Interesting. So on the Amaro Montenegro front, it's a beautiful uh, Amaro. It's, uh, in, in my opinion, it's on the lighter side considering how dark it, it appears. It's, um, yeah, it's got the lovely orange and bergamot flavors. It's, um, It's very friendly. And I I often find it being swapped out for ingredients in certain cocktails. So like you'll, you'll see it occasionally being used in a Boulevardier riff where, you know, they want to take out the Campari, but they don't want to go all the way to like a Chinar with that vegetal aspect. They want to keep it kind of in the orange spectrum. Um, yeah. so occasionally you'll see it like that. Uh, Montenegro is a beautiful one. And then with, uh, Lillet, I recommend at least if you're talking about, I, I know they have a, a Rouge and a Blanc, um, in the, yeah. in the white Negroni, obviously you'd be looking at the Blanc. Um, uh, but I think if you, if you didn't really like that drink, you might've been reacting more to the Suze, which is the uh, really intense gentian liqueur that's used. Um, and I, I think the Lillet, um. I've actually used that occasionally as like my mid-afternoon drink on a Friday, where I I don't want to like start drinking yet. I still have to crank out a little bit more work. (laughs) But I'd like—I'll actually take it and I'll put it in like a a smaller wine glass. I'll put an ice cube in there and then I'll—I'll pour in some Lille Blanc, and um, it's a—it's a fairly approachable little. Aperitivo, I guess it's somewhere in that space between a fortified wine and and a truly cure. But it's it's a really approachable little aperitivo, so I would recommend if you get the chance uh, giving that a second try.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I'm going to uh, this summer. I'm going to get more spritzy. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to try uh, and like spritz it up in the afternoon with a few few things that I've uh, not uh, fallen in love with yet. Yeah, whiskey is one of them. I've tried for years with whiskey and bourbons and all sorts, and they just—I just can't get it. I'm trying, I i have tried my hardest, and it just doesn't work. Hmm.
0: Trying to think, what's a good whiskey for a spritzy occasion? So no,
1: I mean any any drink, hmm. any, even in cocktails, spritzy, everything. I just whiskey just doesn't agree with me. Hmm. It's it's crazy. I've tried so hard. It's like when I was working at bartender uh, Simon McGorum. He's an incredible barman um he would he he tried his hardest as well bless him to give me lots of different um whiskey based cocktails and I think it's just if I didn't know there was whiskey in it my my brain probably would have enjoyed it but the fact that my brain knew there might be whiskey in there, my taste buds went hunting for it hmm <laughs> as soon as they find it they're like nah we well, you know we programmed you not to like it so
0: so, do you think it's the effect of the barrel? Do you, are you just not into those those um, those caramely um, smoky flavors?
1: I mean, I don't. That's the thing. I don't get those flavors. I, when I try whiskey, I never get the thing that everyone else is tasting. I just get this horrible high note that makes me not enjoy it.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: I don't don't, "Oh, It's really smooth. It's like you you just did. And I'm like, I'm not getting that. I'm just getting this horrible, this horrible, high intense disgustingness. It's making me not enjoy it.
0: Mm. All right. Well, this might be a hot take and this might not work for you, but for what it's worth, a lot of rum companies and a lot of agave companies. So tequilas and mezcals Uh, A lot of those companies, at least in the North American market, have been um, trying to gain a little bit more market share by taking some of their products and saying, oh, this is a whiskey drinker's rum or this is a whiskey drinker's tequila, for example. Um, So if you're, not into the whiskeys themselves, maybe you should look into some of those other spirits and see like what people are trying to market to whiskey drinkers so that you can see if it's the influence of the barrel itself or if it's something about the way that whiskey is produced, either in a pot still or, you know, for mass market blended scotches and the blending aspect of it that, that might be turning you off. I'd be That's actually a really interesting um, view, and I, I'd be curious to, to hear what happens if you try some of those um, non-whiskey but whiskey-adjacent products.
1: Oh, actually, one thing that made me laugh is uh, it shows the quality of Conor McGregor's whiskey. I tried it and actually enjoyed it, so that says a lot about his whiskey.
0: and and that's not the reports that i've been hearing i i've i've not had the pleasure slash potential displeasure of that experience
1: um it it just just tastes like someone's uh diluted some whiskey that's all it tastes of okay
0: Okay. Fair. I mean, that's what we do in the end anyway. So, uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Last question here. What is, uh, an unusual or controversial view you have in, and we'll, will uh, I can even broaden this for you either in the spirits and cocktail space, or since we're talking about design, maybe in the design space.
1: Controversial. I think vodka is a, um, a personally suitable, spirits are going to go drink I know that a lot of people don't but and in design space so I just I always when I speak to students and juniors and stuff it's just about find your own path you know what I mean design your own way don't be don't feel that you need to copy other people just to make your work relevant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's something I that applies with life and anything it's just like just find your own path it's a lot more enjoyable than feeling like you need to be that barman, be that designer, you know, do your bar that way. It's like do it your own way that makes you feel comfortable and that's what people flock to. People like different people like something new. So
0: Right, well they uh they they do say that there is no great beauty that hath not some strangeness in proportion. So if if well, if uh, we're used to seeing the same thing over and over the same building design, the same cocktail design, the same flavor design, uh, then what we're really going to pay attention to is that one thing that we recognize the beauty in but that stands out a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right.
1: Yeah, and I just think anything that's made from your soul is um it, that that's Projected in the end result, you know what I mean. It's like you can, if you do something just to try and please people, it always comes out uh, slightly shallower. It's like you know, if if it's if it's made with heart and soul, and that always shines through, and that that crosses all industries.
0: Yeah. Well, and another name for soul is, uh, is a spirit, and uh, that's kind <laughs> of that's kind of what goes into cocktails. So I think I there think it go. all comes full circle. Um, Spirits made Nick. with spirit. Yes, spirited spirits, spirited drinks. Um, Nick, this has been tremendous. I, I feel like I've really been speaking with uh, an artist, uh, somebody who's really dedicated um, to to the details. And this has been really exciting for me. So thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with me. Um, can you just remind folks uh, how to uh, purchase the book or prints uh, and then maybe how to connect with you digitally?
1: Uh, yeah, you can, um, I don't know. Fish me out on Instagram. Um, uh, just I can't remember what my Instagram handle is now. Who knows? Um, and the book's available. If it, it's not in your local bookstore, it's on Amazon and a lot of the other big online retailers. And the posters, uh, no, the best way it would probably be unique, uh, the cheapest and easiest. Or you can buy them through my website. Excellent,
0: excellent. Uh, well, Nick, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey,
0: everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start... This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Production assistance by Rachel Christian. Cocktail design insights, courtesy of Nick Barclay, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.